So to our first guest, fantastic, fantastic man, Alan Johnson. Now, his first job was in Tesco, and in his first book, he says that he left, but quite obviously, reading between the lines, he was fired. Um, this, this is beginning a pattern for the rest of his career. Um, anyway, he then went to the post office, more of which in a moment, and for since 1997, he's been the MP um, for Kingston-upon-Hull West um, and Hessel. Um, he entered the cabinet in 2004 as the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, and then a new post, which I have to look at my notes for, the Secretary of State for Productivity, Energy and Industry, which was only used for a week because the abbreviation, those of you who are clever will already have worked out, is penis. <laughs> So he became Home Secretary instead, <laughs> which is fine. All he ever wanted to be was a writer um, or a pop star, and now he's become a literary rock star, writing all about his life. This boy told the story of the earlier part of his life in the slums of Notting Hill, the tragic early death of his mum, Lily, the heroism of his big sister, Linda, and their abandonment by their dad, all without a shred of self-pity. It's an incredible book. His next one is also incredible. He's here tonight to read for the very first time from the stunning sequel, Please, Mr. Postman. Welcome, a true man of letters, Alan Johnson. Thank you, Thank you Damien. Uh, we met in Shoreham, I think, when we did, a, we did. We did an event together when uh, Damien's fabulous book, Maggie and Me, uh, and, and, and mine were considered to be uh, two of the best biographies by the owners of this lovely bookshop who are here tonight. Lovely city. And books. so we did an event together, and he told me to come here. I wasn't expecting. I didn't know what to expect. The closest I ever got to this kind of event was when I did something for Amnesty International, where we read the works of writers imprisoned in their own country. I read some Geoffrey Archer. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> the, so this kind of salon event is new to me, but no less exciting for that. Please, Mr. Postman, incidentally, is published uh, on September the 18th, which is quite an auspicious political date, mm. the date of the referendum. My, and my publishers actually invited Alison Oh, you're sagging. Hold on a second. The microphone, not you. <laughs> okay. Not that person. Uh, <laughs> yes. Okay, all right. We had a term for that when in the sorting office, but I won't repeat it here. Um, <laughs> we, uh, my publisher, the public date of this is September the 18th and my publishers actually invited Alistair Darling to the oh, no. book launch in London but he said he had something else on that, uh, yeah. that day. Uh, so it's about my time as a postman and living on a council estate in Slough and trying to capture the atmosphere of uh, being a young postman alongside guys who had Almost all of them fought in the Second World War. This was the generation that fought the Second World War were just coming into their 40s. And the ones who had fought the First World War were just retiring. Mm. And they came into this atmosphere in the post office where it was very militaristic. You didn't come to work, you came on duty. You didn't go on holiday, you went on annual leave. And, and these incredible men who had incredible stories to tell, they'd done very perilous things but quite adventurous things in their teens and their early 20s. But the only people they ever talked about that to were their fellow soldiers. They would sit in the sorting office canteen, dependent on what regiment they were in. So the first bit I'd like to read about this is about those men 
at Barnes Southwest 13, quite a nice place to work. I see there's some Barnes people here, um, which had this lovely little sorting office, no longer, I'm afraid, but on Barnes Green with the Sun Pub opposite, and it was a beautiful location to start my working life. So uh, if I can start it from, yes, from down here. Uh, most of the men at Barnes had fought in the war and had experiences they rarely mentioned but which gave them a quiet wisdom. The steady routine of our office may have bordered on the mundane, but there was nothing mundane about the men I worked beside. Frank Dayton had served as a guardsman, tall and straight-backed. He always wore the uniform waistcoat, rarely adopted by other postmen. No matter how hot the weather, he had previously worked as one of the Queen's postmen when in Southwest One, the office that handled all the mail for Buckingham Palace. One of Frank's duties had been to attend Parliament at the end of each daily session to collect a scroll upon which a House of Commons clerk had recorded in copperplate handwriting on thick, parch on thick parchment, perhaps with a quill pen, the highlights of that day's sitting. Frank would wait outside the small post office in Central Lobby, often until the small hours, or even when there was an all-night sitting the following morning. Once proceedings had concluded and the clerk had completed his task, Frank would be summoned from the green leather seats where he'd been dozing to collect the scroll, which had to be taken immediately, uh, immediately to the palace to be handed to one of Her Majesty's equerries. This presentation of the day's events by a loyal subject was the traditional way for the monarch to be kept informed of parliamentary activities. And there was no more loyal subject in the land than Frank Dainton, a fierce defender of the royal family in the surprisingly frequent discussions about their relevance in a fast-changing world. Nobby Clark had been on the beaches of Dunkirk. As was the case with all the ex-servicemen at Barnes, this information had to be prized out of him. None of them boasted about their experiences. For some reason lost in the mists of time, it was an unwritten rule that all men named Clark were known as Nobby, so I never knew his real Christian name. His great hero was the singer Al Bowley, who had been killed in action during the war, but not before providing Nobby with a repertoire of songs with which he'd serenade us each day, somehow managing to sing lustily while gripping a lit pipe between his teeth. Another pipe smoker was Ted Philpot, a studious character with longish swept back hair and a curved stem pipe, the type that Sherlock Holmes smoked. He looked like a university don, but his degree subject was snooker. Every breakfast break would find him at the half-sized snooker table, jacket off, thick blue braces on display, ready to take on all comers. The custom was that the winner remained at the table until he was beaten. I can't remember which regiment Ted had served in, but they must have played a hell of a lot of snooker. He rarely <laughs> left the table. One quiet morning, Ted taught me the basics of the game and its less popular cousin, billiards. Occasionally thereafter, I'd be given the chance to join the rest of the office in being beaten by him. Les Griffiths had served in the fleet air arm, permanently suntanned in the days before sun lamps. He loved being a postman and was as happy in his work as anyone I've ever known. The lives of Nobby, Frank, Ted, Les, and all the other postmen of a certain age, and the lives of their parents had been defined by war in Europe. It was unremarkable in their generation to have been exposed to its horrors, and so their experiences went unremarked, except sometimes among themselves. 
among fellow soldiers. Even those too young to have fought in the war had completed national service, sometimes having seen action abroad in Korea or Aden. I listened intently, fascinated by their stories, hoping that the chain of events that had led to a, to a world war every 20 years or so had now been broken. So the next uh, time I mention these men was we had a, uh, I don't know whether anyone remembers the days when there were trade unions who had strikes longer than 24 hours, but we <laughs> had quite a few of them in the post office. But my introduction to industrial action was, an eight, was as an 18-year-old when our office was called out on strike, along with every other major uh, city in the country, in a one-day dispute uh, in support of some people called overseas telegraph operation, uh, operators. Now, to explain, explain the telegram to younger people here would take <laughs> too long. Just think of a mobile phone that took much longer for the message <laughs> to arrive. But this minority grade had been treated terribly, and we were asked to come out on strike in support of them. So, um, and this was uh, when we came back. Actually, during that day's strike, I wrote a poem that got published, but it was a vanity poem. I had to pay five pounds for it. <laughs> and in a minute, I'm going to inflict, inflict that upon you. But uh, we came back to work. Um, our noble sacrifice in support of a minority grade had led to a satisfactory settlement. But Billy Fares was not the only one, was not one, Billy Fares was our union rep, was not one for flowery rhetoric. His victory speech consisted merely of a muted, well done, lads, before we resumed delivery of the Queen's Mail and picked up the threads of the familiar routine of Barnes Postman's delivery office. Everything was back to normal, except in one small but significant respect. Nobody would speak to Ted Philpot. Ted Philpot had come into work on the 30th of January. Ted Philpot had broken the strike. I don't know how this fact became known. Billy hadn't announced it in his little speech. Nobody mentioned Ted's name. The information seemed somehow to be conveyed, conveyed on the ether. Suddenly, nobody, nobody was saying good morning to Ted, and the usual pleasantries went unexchanged. In the parlance of the age, he had been sent to Coventry. Nobody was aggressive towards him or argued with him about the strike. It was worse, much worse than that. Ted Philpot was simply ignored. In the canteen, he would rise from the breakfast table, hopefully, snooker cue in hand, but nobody would play against him. After a while, he'd retreat behind his daily telegraph, puffing his pipe, alone, in a room full of men. I was at Barnes for only five months, for only five more months, and in all that time, nobody spoke to Ted Philpot. For all I know, his isolation lasted until his retirement. I was as guilty as my workmates of inflicting this terrible punishment. I colluded in trying to break a man's spirit, and it's something I've been ashamed of ever since. Now you get the poem. Uh, this is... Um, Speaking of shame. Have I, how, much, how much time have I got, by the way? Oh, enough time for the poem. Okay. <laughs> so um, this vanity publication had, uh, of course, accepted my five pounds. <laughs> I don't know whether they still exist, by the way, but... Yeah, they, do they? Okay, the agents right. are nodding. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, <clears throat> back at Camelford Road, where we lived in Notting Hill with my first wife. There it was, unwrapped in my hands, Spring Poets 69, subtitled 
an anthology of contemporary verse. The hardback book carried a sale price of 45 shillings, 50 shillings by post. According to the back cover, it was available in the USA and Canada for $8. I wasn't naive enough to imagine that this book would be, would be bought anywhere, but turned it reverent, reverently in my hands, admiring its neat design and skillful binding. It contained 400, 504 poems. At five pounds a shot, the publishers had collected a whopping 2,520 pounds from us vain and gullible poets. <laughs> this sum would easily have covered the printing costs and provided the publishers with a handsome profit. There was no need for them to bother attempting actually to sell it to anyone. They couldn't lose. No wonder the cover advertised a further collection, 20th century poets that would be available <laughs> later in the year. The poems featured in Spring Poets 69 were awful, mine included. Most of the contributors had paid for several pieces of work to be published. Indeed, a certain Isabella Oswald had 14 poems in the book, 60, <laughs> 60 pounds worth. On page 205, I found my solitary contribution. <laughs> Youth, in frantic years we grow to be people of the world. In frantic years that are supposed to teach us, and we never really know why we're supposed to know, as a thousand clammy hands stretch out to reach us. And as we sail the balmy years on our cushioned little cloud, we have no mind or thought of what's ahead. Each pimply worry dies in the freedom of our cries and crumples on the shelter of our bed. It takes a lot to learn, an awful lot to learn, that all the time you ran, your future followed. The beard is on your face. You've slammed the book and lost your pace, place. And the bitter pill of life is slowly swallowed. Oh. <laughs> None of the applause is for the poem. <laughs> now, it, it continues. Not the poem. Oh. Not the poem. <laughs> I can see that it's not exactly T.S. Eliot. However, in my defense, I reckon it's positively Shakespearean compared with some of the other poems contained in this, to quote the blurb on the cover, fine anthology. <laughs> Take, for instance, Kippers by Sheila Smirthwaite. Here's an extract. Everything's a pity, everything's sad, like a wet kipper slapped against a wall. That's sad. <laughs> I am a kipper. <laughs> I feel the same as the kipper must have felt. <laughs> Hooked, caught, pulled in, smoked, cured, dried, packaged, opened, cooked, then thrown against a wall, a waste, a pity, sad, but gone now, funny smell. <laughs> I hope Sheila Smirthwaite isn't here tonight. <laughs> Sniffing for kippers? No, she's not. She's not. Um, the book is fantastic, and it's by turns very funny like that, and, and again, also very sad like your first memoir. Um, and you bring to life this world that has, has gone, um, not just the world of council houses and slough, but the, the world of the GPO, the world of collective uh, sort of industry in that way. And when you joined it, it seemed like it hadn't changed for 100 years, had it? No. That, I did some BBC thing about the post office in the First World War and how they moved 12 million items out to the front line. And it struck me that but when I joined in 1968, very little had changed. Everything was done by hand. It was, all, it was uh, part of the civil service, general post office. I became a civil servant, signed the Official Secrets Act and all that. 
And you got your uniforms. I got my uniforms, my blue serge with the red piping, which was fabulous, except every time it rained, your legs were blue because the dye came off on your legs. Um, so, so there was no new technology, no mechanization, as we called it then. Everything was done by hand and very similar to, to I guess, 1840 when Roland Hill effectively began the modern post office. So, and you were, what, 17 when you joined? 18. 18. So after being, after resigning from Tesco's, Damien. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, resigning. And, and uh, uh, succeeding in my rock career to the extent that I had a demo disc. Uh, a, a demo so disc. A vanity <laughs> poem and a demo disc. <laughs> yeah. See where this is going. Uh, then I, I joined when I was 18. Then so, on my 18th birthday. So and so you joined the post office. It didn't seem like it had, had changed for 100 years. Everybody was much older than you. Were you intimidated by those men? Were you were you quiet? Did you no. keep to yourself, or did you kind of go and hang out with them? And no. Now here I turn to the audience because I know in any audience like this, loads of people will say, "Oh, I was a postman or a postwoman." They were Christmas casuals, uh, yeah? They came in, you couldn't walk across the sorting office floor without tripping over a sociology student from Sheffield <laughs> University. And they were a bloody pest, but they insist, oh, I was a postwoman, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but the people who did that, I was talking to some guy at BBC today, said how cheerful everyone was at kind of five o'clock in the morning. It was, yeah. a, it was an, a strange, kind of, you got up in the middle of the night, but somehow there was a camaraderie about being that you know, being awake and working when nobody else was. So no, it was a very friendly place, and they were very kind to me. They couldn't understand what the hell I was doing in a, at a time when there were jobs everywhere in the 60s. Why did I come and work in the post office? Because you had these things called incremental scales, which meant your pay was based on your age. So you didn't get your top pay until you were about 25, 26, mm. uh, and you had to sort of slog away. Uh, getting a small increase every year until you reached maximum pay. And people older than you would come in on maximum pay. So they couldn't understand why I was... So why did why you, you in the join the post office rather than any of the other jobs? Because, it, because Sham, the bass guitarist in the in-betweens, the fabulous band that is legendary uh, <laughs> to those six or seven people who've heard of them, uh, Sham was a postman in North London. Mm -hmm. And when all our gear got nicked and we had to fold the band, he said he wanted me to start a band with him. Uh, but he said, why don't you join the post office? I was just getting married. My, I married a single mother, so she had a child. There was another child on the way, and I needed money. And he said, it's low basic pay, but you, because of that, they can't attract staff. You can work all the overtime under the sun, and you can earn, earn the money. It did seem terrifying to me that you were 18 years old, and you, you were married, you had a job, you had a kind of adopted uh, your, your wife's child, and you had a child on the way. And you weren't just terrified, um, or were you? Because that terror doesn't come across. You seem to be just kind of getting on with it, you know? I wasn't terrified. My first wife, Judy, she yes. had similar. Her mother died when she was a year old uh, in childbirth, and then her father ran off. So she, was, she had no parents. I had no parents. So all mm. our mates were trying to get out of family life. We were kind of trying to get into family life. Having never really had. I've never really had. I mean, your, your experiences were, were quite similar. So to us, that and you know the thing you just mentioned those institutions, the things that we needed for security were a council house, which we got because they pulled our place in Notting Hill down to make the the road just out here, the A40 extension, mm. cut a swathe right through North Kensington, Notting Hill. So we got a council house. 
I had a job that, you know, I was, provided I could get up at four o'clock in the morning, I would have for the rest of my life with a pension at the end of it, security. And I had a trade union that actually represented my interests. So, you know, it wasn't a bad life. And now some of the insecurity that people feel is that those institutions don't exist to the same degree. Mm. Yeah. No, and the period that your memoir covers is a period of great change. Um, everything changes at the post office, and it goes from being a, a, an operation run by men, and I say men because there weren't very many women at all, it seems like, there. Um, and, then, and then machinery, which we're all quite kind of suspicious of um, when you see it for the first time. Um, and, and that period of change is you know, um, potentially very negative for you, but in, act in actual fact, you find in it something about your personality. You find in it opportunity by getting involved in the union. How did that happen? Yeah, well, basically, someone says, you want to be on the postman's committee, you know, we need people to come. Incidentally, that thing about um, the, the, the way that equal opportunities came into the post office, you know, if you, there were, there were 40,000 telephonists in those days, had to connect people's calls. If you're a woman, you couldn't be a night telephonist. You couldn't be. Only men were night what telephonists. What was the rash? Was ever a rationale given for that? No, there wasn't. Think, uh, just right. just, uh, no just rationale. sexism. No, no women, uh, no men were allowed to be day telephonists. Um, I mean, that all changed incredibly with the Equal Opportunities Act in the middle of the 70s. Didn't change before then. Mm. Uh, so all of that changed. But so when I became a trade union, the, the branch chairman of the Slough Amalgamated Branch of the Union of Post Office Workers, age 24, suddenly this whole world of educational opportunities opened up. Mm. The, po the, the union offered correspondence courses, no internet or anything like that then, through this place, Tillicultry, in Clackmanninger in Scotland, where you would, could take any subject under the sun, English literature, whatever, you could, you could do My it. My grandfather did two genius courses when he did was he? in Steelworks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all free of charge. Yeah. And then, of course, if you could afford it, you could go to Ruskin College. That meant taking time off work, and that meant not being able to earn the overtime and all that, so I couldn't do that. But, and then to be a trade union representative, you had to learn how to speak publicly so public speaking was very important to that to negotiate you started to write letters your gray matter started to work again i mean it's a fabulous it's the untold story of workers education in this uh, in this country but also social mobility a term mm. we never used then but mm. you know you know, it's incredibly um, a book about books because it's not just you with your with your love of poetry. I mean, you discover Hardy and, and all the other kinds of people that you wouldn't have been expected to discover, you know, in the slum, basically, that you were growing up in. But you get to the post office and it becomes, you, you find all these men who've survived the war and have very rich cultural yeah. lives. And it was kind of amazing to think that people, you know, people are reading Dylan Thomas aloud in the staff room and stuff like well, that. Well, it's fine, yeah. Not quite like that. But, but yeah, it was it getting was, like it, that it, it at one point. Uh, you know, I said that the postmen, weren't many women, Brenda, the first postwoman in the Slough, came along at the end of the 70s, but those men I worked beside, I've never worked beside so many cultured people in my life. But you kind of kept Says it. he who's been in the Houses of Parliament. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the point I'm making, Damien, uh, <laughs> rather crudely. Uh, <laughs> but the, these men... You know, you had to be, they were quite shy about it. So you'd read, um, I mean, I read The Times, but I never read it in front of anyone. I'd stick it in my sack and read it when I went home because it looked like you were being pretentious if you sat in a canteen reading. And some, uh, this, this guy, this Indian postman, George Serple, saw me reading a book 
And it turned out that he was an Asian postman. He, he studied English literature at university in India, came over here, didn't have the qualifications mm. for his professional job, which I think was an academic, so thought he'd come into the post office temporarily. There were lots of guys like that. And he said to me, have you ever read Thomas Hardy? And he got me reading Return of the Native. He lent me Return of the Native. This guy, Jock Hasty, all Scotsmen were called Jocks, unfortunately, I'm afraid. They're just so like racist. anyone called Clark was called Nobby. He, he recited big chunks of Shakespeare to me when he knew I was interested in poetry. This guy, Des O'Callaghan, introduced me to W.B. Yeats and, and Larkin for the first time, my great uh, passion for... And he did it you know, very quietly. Oh, if you're interested in poetry... You know, yeah. You know, it's almost like you're passing pornography or something yeah. around you know, poetry. So these were, this was a great education. It was a great university, if you like, yeah. at uh, Slough Sorting Office. Um, so that's, that's your workplace. Let's talk about where you were living. So you'd got the council house, which was the great dream of your mother, was to have her own front door, front back door, you know, uh, um, which is what, you know, I remember my mother saying exactly the same thing. I want my own front and back door. And, of course, that offer came for your, for your mum after she died. She was too late to make good of it. But it came, it came for you and you ended up in Slough. Yeah. What, what was that like then? It was amazing. I told a story in the book where, so uh, we were told by the council, we're pulling your house down. You've only been on the council waiting list a year. Uh, we've only been married a year. We, you get one ch chance. You know, we're not going to ponce around with three or four different choices. You get one chance, take it or leave it. And the opportunity was on the Britwell Estate in Slough. And we went to look at this place on the Britwell Estate, which is a 1950s... London County Council estate built out in the provinces to try and redress the, the, short, the terrible shortage of housing. And when we got to the, police, to the station, Slough Station, my wife and I, on the train, there were two coppers by a, one of those light blue Ford Anglias that they used to go, go about in. And we said, can you tell us the way to the, do you know the way to the Britwell estate? And this copper said, well, we ought to. We go there often enough. <laughs> Why do you want to go there? So Judy said... Well, because we've been offered a house. He said, I wouldn't live in the Britwell for all the money on, on earth. So, you know, we went to this council which had this terrible reputation. And it was a one, we lived there very happily for almost 20 years. And we couldn't believe it, coming from the slums of Notting Hill, that those coppers could deride a place that was actually... I don't know why I feel in the book I need to kind of redeem the reputation of council houses, but it's mm. almost now yeah, you're a like council tenant, you, you're a loser in life or something. Yeah, like you know? it's shameful somehow. It's something yeah. shameful. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we had this house, two bedrooms, which we knocked into three, uh, uh, and we had the stability of that. I describe in the book the neighbours around the green, and there were people from different classes as well on council estates, you know, people who I would say spoke posh, uh, and it was, a, it was a lovely community around that little green in, in, on the Britwell Estate. And we never had any cause to find it. It was a terrible place to live. And the thing I recalled in the book is when Right to Buy came in in the mm. early 80s, which wasn't some dry political issue for us because we'd been there by then for 13 years and we could have bought that place with sort of two-thirds of the price knocked off. And I don't... I'm, you know, I try not to be pious about this because I understand why people did buy their council houses. You yeah. Know, you could paint your front door any colour you liked. But to me and to Judy, this thing nagging in my mind was my mother spending the whole of her life 
waiting for a council house that never came. And as you say, getting the offer two weeks after she died. Mm. And here was me at 18, which is the age my mother was when she left Liverpool to come to London, having a council house. And I felt an obligation, you know. Mm. And many people, there's a guy I mentioned in a book, Fred Oakham, who was a BBC scene shifter. Uh, and when Fred kind of got promoted, got a bit more money, he bought a house off the Britwell. Mm. And his council house went to someone else who... So, you know, we felt it was very, uh, you know, uh, to me, it was very important not to buy my council house, but to leave that opportunity there. Mm. Uh, but for all the people around me, for reasons I completely understand, it very soon changed from being that kind of a state to being a different place. Um, your, your sister, Linda, who is kind of the, the heroine of, of, of the first book, um, yeah, Lynn Barber sitting here said, never mind about Alan Johnson being the Prime Minister, Linda Johnson should have been the Prime Minister in her review. Well, she's, a, she's a, an, an incredible, incredible, I say character, it's the funny thing about writing a memoir because the people in your lives become characters, but she's an incredible character and she does, you know, leap off the page and, we, and you do feel this kind of connection to her and you join in her struggle with you to, to get into a council house and escape, you know, social services. Um, and, and all the rest of it, and she manages that. What did she think of your life at this point? You know, because you'd married oh, a, sen a single mother essentially, and you, you, you know, you were working. She was disappointed. So first of all, I'd left school at fifteen when she told me not to, and she was disappointed with that. Then when she got married and moved to Watford with Mike, my brother-in-law, they had a room for me, and I said, I'm not going to to the countryside in the north. Uh, you know, <laughs> Watford. It was far too far north. Uh, so I went back to Notting Hill, back to the mean streets where we'd been brought up, and she was disappointed by that. So when I went to tell her, Judy was her friend. They studied together. They were contemporaries. Judy mm. was four years older than me. And, you know, she'd studied uh, to be a nursery nurse with Linda. So it wasn't any animosity towards Judy, but suddenly, I mean, Linda felt this huge weight of responsibility. Her mother had died, father had gone. She was responsible for me. I'd left school at 15. You know, I'd gone back to live in Notting Hill. Now I was telling her I'm getting married to a to a single mother. Uh, she said, "Oh, you know, that's you, you're going to damage your future and all that." She was very, very cross. When Linda was very cross, it was very difficult. I made all my smart ass arguments. Well, Mike's four years older than you. You don't say anything about that. You got married at 19. You know, why shouldn't I get married at 18? None of I won the day. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so like Linda was, was living with Mike, who had been her boyfriend, she married to him, kids with him, and he was a great friend of yours. Um, and he features throughout, throughout the book um, and is a role model for you, really. Oh. But he has a secret that you don't know about, that you don't discover until it's oh. too late. What, what was the secret? He was an alcoholic, yeah. Uh, and had been since he was a, you know, very young, since before he met Linda. And um, you never suspected he'd managed nobody, to be functional? Nobody suspected, no. He would drink vodka so it didn't smell on his breath, chew eucalyptus uh, sweets and things like that. Uh, so nobody knew. Uh, but it was, you know, when we found out, it was kind of too late. I mean, what's interesting about so much has changed since, since that time. One of the things that's really changed is our understanding of alcoholism and... and um, uh, we're a bit more, I suppose, sophisticated, maybe less ashamed of it. It seems to me that one of the things that was so powerful and difficult was that Linda felt she couldn't talk to anybody. She didn't even talk to you about it, did she? No, she didn't, but I understand that because Mike wouldn't have wanted to be diminished. I mean, he was a kind of hero to me. 
so I understand why she didn't want to do that and why he well he felt ashamed. Now, I mean, reading your book about that drinking culture, mm. it, I think around the 1970s it began to be seen as an illness, alcoholism, and not something you just joked about. Oh, you had five gin and tonics, you must be an alcoholic. Mm. You know, it would be, there was more understanding of it as a really serious illness and one you could only recover from by not drinking. Um, so she, you know, I mean, Linda had been orphaned in her teens and ended up widowed in her 20s, but she went through that battle to try and, with Mike, to try and stop drinking. And it was a terrible time. And it's the battle, as you just said, that he lost because he ended up killing himself, didn't mm. he? And at, at that point in your life, when, you, when, you, when, that, when that happened, did it change your view of your future? Did it make you want to do anything differently? Did it make you re-examine your life? Not really, no. It didn't make me... It was just a terrible personal tragedy for Linda, so I had to... So, you know, my sister then had three kids and was fostering another three kids. So she she had tried to kind of see me through when we were kids. So I had to try and see her through this terrible time. Very inadequately, I have to say. But, um, you know, that was really the focus. So a role reversal. Kind of role reversal. And, uh, you know, I was just so sad about Mike. And we were all going back over what we could have done and if we'd have known earlier and all that stuff that people will know from personal tragedies they've had. Um, one of the, I think, most charming um, bits of the book and, and, and delightful is the foreshadowing of your future career to come, which is when he's a postman. Um, one of the places that he has to go on his post round is Dorney Wood, which is the country home of the Home Secretary. Um, and you're, you're delivering the mail there. Did you ever in your wildest dreams think, yeah, I'll no. be in there and I no, won't no, be delivering no. the mail? No. To, to, just, I, I'm glad I've put the record straight because people have said in over the years I delivered to 10 Downing Street, Chequers, <laughs> Buckingham Palace. I must have had the biggest bloody delivery in the, <laughs> in the world. But where I actually delivered was the Home Secretary's residence in Dorney Wood. And um, whenever the Home Secretary was, and it was Merlin Reese at the time, was there, there was a, usually a very, very plump copper halfway down the driveway in quite a small little hut. In fact, he filled the hut. <laughs> and when the copper was there, you knew that uh, the Home Secretary was in residence. And it struck me as very easy to get past them because they never stopped a raw mail then. Why uh, would they? No. Uh, but um, but my, my good friend John Prescott, who was the MP for East Hull, spent quite a lot of time at Dorney Wood. You remember the croquet mm. uh, incident? Yes. But John, John said to me, you've got to think of this in the world of the inverted kind of snobbery of the labour movement. Uh, John said to me about how much he liked Dorney Wood. He mentioned it. I said, oh, I know Dorney Wood. He said, oh, have you seen that lovely entrance hall and that winding staircase? I said, I never went in the front door, John. I delivered the mail in the servants' quarters, <laughs> which made me kind of one-up in that, uh, uh, that working-class aristocracy. I'll take questions for the working-class aristocrat. <laughs> oh, of course, Sylvia. There you are, hand up like a toaster in a house on fire. Go on. Hello. Hi. I'll explain about Sylvia later. Okay. Go on. No, I wanted to say who is Sylvia. No, no. no. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, how do you think the Labour Party has changed since you joined? A meaty, meaty question. How has the Labour Party changed since you joined it in? When well, was I it? joined it in 1974. Thank you, uh, Sophia. 
And my big hero was Jimmy Reed, the leader of the... And he'd left the Communist Party and joined the Labour Party, so I did the same thing. Uh, it's changed a lot. If I was to think about the 80s, last time we went out of government in the late 70s, I mean, we just went mad. It was like our... You know, our motto was no compromise with the electorate. We were tearing <laughs> ourselves to pieces. Uh, and I described that. I described going to a Labour Party conference in a suit. All those working class lads got, mm. we were representing our members. You stuck a suit on. And it was like you were kind of caught up as an aristocrat in the storming of the Bastille, you know, because everyone wore denim and loads of badges on them saying what, they, what their views were and this, that and the other. It was a crazy time. And, you know, I think we were virtually unelectable. Well, you, in fact, were unelectable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which was why we weren't elected. <laughs> but then you did get elected, I mean, in, in, in 1997, and that, that's when you entered it. And when you entered, what, were you thinking, yes, I'm going to be prime minister, eyes on the top job, or were you thinking, I'm just going to go and represent my constituents? Or? Exactly the latter. I mean, I felt I didn't have anything to prove. My ambition, which is explained in the book, was mm. to get to the top in the union. Uh, I don't get quite to the top in the book, but I got shortly afterwards. Um, you know, I wanted to get on the National Executive Council. I wanted to become a national officer. I wanted to become a national officer because I knew that would then be the launch pad for being the general secretary. And I had all of that kind of ambition out of me by then. I, I, I just felt this was a remarkable opportunity to represent 65,000, 70,000 people in, in, uh, in Hull. Uh, and I didn't have any plans to do anything beyond that and you're still an mp so what are your plans now uh to come to do's like this to go around to literary festivals to write all right i love, then. I, lo I, lo I, love I love the process of writing there's lots of write there's writers in this room i can't hold a candle to and you know shouldn't be in the same room as but you know i like that uh, the whole thing about writing of producing a, a book i like doing book reviews i like you know this has awakened something in me that I wanted to be, as I say in the first book, as a mm. kid. Mm. I was trying to write with my left hand because I thought if I'm going to write for a living, I have to be auto. I have to be uh, whatever that by yeah, thing yeah, yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and be by D dexterous. That one. And be dexterous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, other questions for Alan? Oh, people. Yes, Nikki. Good question. Well. I'm glad there is no bitterness. Bitterness doesn't work on the page. I wouldn't say there isn't any bitterness about the kind of some of the things that happened when I was a kid. You know, my father beating up my mother. God, you've been th through all this, Damien. But if you try and put that on the page, it doesn't work, does it? So you have to... And also, I was trying to be my mother's biographer in the first book. So I was trying to take a step back, which is why I call her Lily, and I call my father Steve because it's a better device for me to separate myself from them. So when it came to looking through that window and seeing people like Mr. Cox, who was everything my father wasn't, and who had this, you know, when you were ambitious for your kids then, you bought a complete set of the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's how you proved, as a working-class family, you wanted your kids. That's, that was aspiration. And he had the Encyclopedia Britannica, and he had a complete set of Dickens, and he had Wilkie Collins, and he had, you know, Coral Island. He had these wonderful books... And he kept them all locked in the cabinet. <laughs> no one could get to them. So dear Mr. Cox, you know, was doing things his own way. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah the, 
whatever. There's no chips on my shoulder. I don't think there are any chips on Linda's shoulder. There's certainly no chips on yours. No. And same with Maggie and me. It wouldn't have worked on the page. It doesn't work. I think you can write angry, but I think people don't want to read angry. It sounds... Yeah. It's like being shouted at. Nobody wants... It's like, yeah, yeah. oh, if you, have, if you have a choice to walk away from someone who's shouting at you, you walk away, and if it's on the page, you just close the book, you know. Yeah. Save it for therapy. So we've had the first book, and this is the second book. Is there going to be a third? Is there going to be a kind of, you know, I'd once like you... Once be, you're yeah. I, I don't want to carry on this uh, to a third book. And I, I you know, so that's what, a not, novel? not saying I won't. I'd love to do a novel, yeah. I'd love to do um, something different. Because the closer it comes to today, the more it becomes a kind of political memoir and the more boring it becomes. Because the, Blair, the uh, Blair Brown years have been saturated with biographies. And, um, and I don't feel, it, it's, it's terribly depressing when what you call your youth, other people call social history, but you know, <laughs> I, I did want to capture some things about the 60s and 70s and indeed the 80s, uh, which I don't really want to capture about the 90s because it's too recent and uh, doesn't interest me as much. Well, you succeeded with your mission. Thank you, Alan Johnson. Thank you.